in way of quick recap, in week three, we found the Israelites struggling with their Philistine enemies. And due to their lack of obedience, of following the commands of God and keeping their end of the covenant, God allowed the Philistines to defeat them. We saw Israel was worshiping the idols Baal and Ashtaroth, and they even treated the Ark of the Covenant like one of these idols, trying to force God's hand. And at the end of last week's section, we left on a high note. Israel repented from their idolatry, threw out and turned away from their idols, and began to seek the Lord alone. The Lord defeated the Philistines by thundering against them, and Nicole told us the Israelites were seeing God as their war hero and military power once more. If only the Israelites would have remembered and lived in that reality. But as you've seen this week in your time of study, they quickly forgot. Tonight, we'll see the institution of Israel's monarchy. If after a week in these five chapters, you feel very mixed about the monarchy in Israel's first king, that's exactly what you're supposed to feel at this point. The author of Samuel has purposely set up a roller coaster of narratives meant to move his readers back and forth between positive and negative feelings. Chapter 8 will serve as a contrast to chapter 7 that we saw last week. Chapters 9, 10, and 11 will be very quick to move back and forth between that mixture of feelings. And where we end chapter 11 thinking, hey, this might not be so bad. <laughs> chapter 12 comes in as a mirror and a bookend to chapter 8. So we are going to start in chapter 8, and we're going to read the first five verses. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Samuel has advanced in years. His sons are serving as judges in southern Israel, and we're given a quick description about them that should immediately have brought to mind Hophni and Phinehas. Joel and Abijah are not faithful like Samuel. They use their leadership role for selfish ends at the expense of others. So the elders of Israel come, and they ask Samuel for a king. And let's just focus on that part for a minute. That doesn't sound like that bad of a thing if they were just asking for a king. Maybe they've learned that their leaders have great impact on who they've become and who they follow. Maybe they don't want to return to similar years under, like they had under Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas. Or maybe they think that they can use their current situation as justification for their own ideas of what they'd like to see in a leader over Israel. Because the elders' request doesn't just stop at give us a king. No, they add a king to judge, govern, or lead like all the nations. It's merely their same idolatry in a different form. Instead of worshiping actual idols carved of stone or wrongfully using the very piece of tabernacle furniture that represented the presence of Yahweh, now they want to put their hope and trust in a human king like all their enemy nations. 
Israel's call after the Lord delivered them from Egypt was a call to holiness, a call to be set apart, a call to be different. And this request shows this is the last thing they want to be. They want to be like everyone else. Let's look at 6 through 9. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they've not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they also are doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Samuel is unhappy. Other translations expanded out a bit on that word displeased to show that Samuel knew that this was a sinful and wrong request of the people. And the Lord tells Samuel that their ask isn't a rejection of him personally, but of God. Up to this point, point, the Lord had faithfully served as Israel's king. And God says they're repeating the same sin they've committed since they've left Egypt, forsaking him and serving other gods. They're once again rejecting God and his provisions for them. God tells Samuel to give them a king, only to warn, of, warn them of what the king will do to them. Verses 10 through 18, so Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. The king will take, he will take, he will take. And once he's taken their sons, once he's taken their daughters, their fields, their crops, their livestock, and their servants, he will take the people as his own slaves. Israel will find themselves bound to another king, another yoke of slavery, one they asked for. Samuel tells them that one day they will cry out because of what they're choosing, and the Lord will not answer the warnings of all the taking should have given the Israelites pause, but it didn't. Being told the Lord will not answer them when they cry out and remember their history from Egypt, their time in the wilderness, and coming into the land of Canaan. They would cry out and the Lord would rescue them. And he's telling them up front, this cycle won't continue when you cry out because you've chosen a king. This should have made them wake up and repent again, but it doesn't. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. 
And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go, every man, to a city. So the people refuse to obey the voice of Samuel, and the Lord tells them to obey Samuel's voice. What a terrifying thing it is when the Lord permits our voices to be obeyed above his own. Israel wants a king they can see, a king like everyone else has. And do you hear the lies in that request that we too hear and often believe? If only we had what they have. If only we fit in. If we could just have this one thing, then all would be well. Instead of recalling all the ways the Lord had miraculously been their war hero and their military power over places like Jericho and the the Philistines, like we heard last week, they want a human to go out before them and to fight their battles. They're putting their trust in the one who is limited but can be seen instead of the one who is unlimited yet unseen. Before we cover chapter 9, I want to take just a minute to dive a little further into one of the references back uh, to Deuteronomy 17 that you saw in your homework this week, where laws were given concerning Israel's kings. This is hundreds of years prior to this present moment in Samuel where Moses is preparing the Israelites for entry into the promised land. And so how many of you, when you got to that question, were surprised to see laws about this very thing back there? Any of you surprised? No? Yes? Okay. (laughs) So uh, this moment in 1 Samuel 8 is written clearly um, in Deuteronomy 17. We're going to read verses 14 through the end of that chapter. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children, in Israel. Of course, God knew that this moment would occur. He'd already stated that he would allow their request, only he put forth ways Israel's kings should not be like the kings of other nations. Horses from Egypt going back to Egypt or going down to Egypt often represents self-reliance in the scriptures. Uh, Many wives would have tempted the kings away from Yahweh and into the nations or the false gods that the nations they came from worshipped, and excessive wealth would become the king's main focus. All of those things were supposed to be no-goes for Israel's king. If you know much of the history of the kings, you know nearly all of them struggle with the very things they were warned not to have, when so much so that his reign leads to the splitting of the kingdom. 
Israel's king is called to meditate on the law of God, to learn to fear the Lord and to remain humble so that his kingdom will continue. The kingdom of Israel had been spoken about even before Deuteronomy. Back in Genesis 17, God tells Abraham kings will come from him. And in Genesis 49, when his grandson Jacob is blessing his sons before his death, he tells Judah that the scepter and his ruler's staff will not depart from him, both objects belonging to a king. God is going to use this new office he's already promised his people for great things, even if Israel demands demands it now with wrong and sinful heart motivations. The kingship is the third office in Israel besides the prophet and the priest that Christ will ultimately fulfill. In chapter 9 through the first half of chapter 10, we meet Saul. For sake of time, I'm going to summarize some of this section instead of reading every verse, highlighting some of the things that aren't as easy to pick up on in the text. So we see first that Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin is the smallest tribe in Israel. We'll hear why later. And he is described as handsome right off the bat. And the text points out that he is very tall. His appearance is the focus. And we'll see tonight and more so in coming weeks. He's got some inward character flaws. But hey, he's good looking and tall. Then we get this seemingly random story of Saul looking for his father Kish's lost donkeys. Saul covers a lot of ground over several days with his father's servant, and right when he's about to give up, his servant remembers there's a man of God near, and they could pay him to help them find the donkeys. And wouldn't you know it, right in the middle of that chapter, that this man of God is none other than our beloved Samuel, who we also found out had a vision the day prior where God tells him that God is going to send him the man to anoint as prince over his people. And that this man will save the Israelites from the Philistines, their enemies on the west. The word king there is purposefully avoided, showing that this role is limited and conditional according to God's choosing. When Samuel sees Saul, the Lord says, that's him. This is the guy I told you about yesterday. And before Saul can even ask about those donkeys... Samuel shares what's lost has been found and invites him to dinner. And Saul is very confused. We see a humble response from him asking why he would be spoken so highly of. A special portion of meat is given to Saul at dinner, and that portion would have been given to the priests. Samuel tells him to not be concerned that he'll explain it all in the morning. And at daybreak, Samuel hollers at Saul to get up, asks him to tell his servant to go on ahead, and he privately anoints Saul. Anointing represented the Lord's empowerment. And prior to the kingship, anointing only took place for priests in the tabernacle. So this anointing by the prophet Samuel shows that the institution of the kingship is from God. And from Hannah's prayer in week two, and this first anointing here on out, that phrase, the anointed one, is used to describe Israel's king. And the prophet Isaiah often uses that phrase to prophesy about the Messiah, the anointed one, the king to come. 
Samuel tells Saul that there will be three signs on his way home that confirm his anointing as king. The first sign is a group telling him that his father's found the donkeys and now he's worried about Saul. The second sign is a group carrying sacrificial offerings. Again, uh, they're going to offer Saul part, even though he's not a priest. The sacrificial offerings would have only been allowed um, up to this point for priests to be eaten, and Saul gets to take it. The third sign is that Saul will join into a group of prophets prophesying. And we see when Saul leaves, God gives him another heart, and all these signs come to pass. At that point, it sounds like things are looking up. The Spirit of God comes upon Saul, which from your homework question you saw had happened through the Israelite history, um, specifically in the times of the judges, for a specific person to carry out a specific task. For the two kings that we're going to meet in Samuel, the Spirit's rushing looks a little bit different. It's, it's a little bit different for Saul and later for David compared to what we know and believers experience as the Spirit's permanent indwelling now. Again, the Spirit in, uh, in this time of the judges and for these two first kings, they come on for specific times for specific tasks. It's a little bit different than the permanent indwelling that we know now. Saul prophesies in his hometown to complete the assurances God was giving him. And all around him are shocked, so shocked that they coin a phrase to use when they're surprised. Like any time that they're surprised, you're going to hear them say, is Saul also among the prophets? So Saul's uncle checks in with him and Saul only tells his uncle that Samuel told him the donkeys were, had been found without mentioning anything else. Saul left home to find donkeys. And comes home having found a kingdom. At this point, we're supposed to feel positivity towards the kingship. God has displayed his sovereignty over a man losing his donkeys to bring Samuel, Israel's first king, to anoint. He has graciously given Saul assurance in way of signs to confirm and bolster him for his new role, as well as his very spirit. It is short-lived positivity, because here comes the rest of chapter 10. We're going to pick up in verse 17. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. So Samuel calls the people back to Mizpah, the very place God had defeated the Philistines for them. And reminds the people once more that God has been their deliverer but they've rejected him for a human king. And one commentator pointed out the structure of Samuel's address here is a prophetic speech pattern used to announce judgment. The selection process of the king falls where the announcement of judgment would normally come. In Hosea 13:11, we see God says he gave Israel a king in his anger. Verse 20, then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites were taken by Lot. 
And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he's hidden himself among the baggage. With every lot cast, which would be similar to rolling dice, we can fill the build up to Israel meeting their king. But when Saul is chosen, he can't be found. The people have to ask the Lord if he's sure he got it right, (laughs) which God answers by giving them Saul's exact location, cowardly hiding in the baggage. And you think that this would be a sign to the Israelites, given their demand was for a king that would go out before them and fight their battles. And yet on his confirmation day, he's hiding from his own people and his God-given and confirmed calling. And the Israelites don't even seem to take that discrepancy into account. They ran and take him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There's none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. He may not act the part, but he surely looks the part. Everyone, it looks like including Samuel, is blown away by Saul's height. He's a head taller than anybody else around, and that's all they need to shout, long live the king. They've got their guy, the man of their own choosing. And as an aside note, I'd always thought that Saul was the people's choice, like they went and picked him. But the text shows God has chosen him not just once with orchestrating a meetup with Samuel, but twice with casting lots before the entire assembly of Israel. God does choose their first king, but perhaps he's chosen exactly what the people would choose to teach them a few lessons. Remember the word play back in chapter one uh, that I mentioned with Hannah's response to Eli and the close relation to Samuel's name and the Hebrew word meaning ask in chapter one, verse 27 and 28. That word to ask is the Hebrew word sa'al. Here, Israel has wrongfully asked for a king and God gives them their ask. Or in other words, they have sawed for a king, and God gives them their Saul. Verses 25 through 27. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went home to his home at Gibeah. With him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. Samuel sends everyone home. Saul goes back to Gibeah, and God sends Saul men to support him. But there are some worthless fellows that question how this man is going to save Israel. And they hate him from the start. And Saul stays cool, calm, and collected for now. In chapter 11, we see Saul's first test as king, and we meet another of the Israelites' enemies, the Ammonites, this time from the east. Chapter 11, verse 1. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged 
Jabesh Gilead and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, on this condition, I'll make a treaty with you that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, give us seven days respite that we may send messengers throughout all the territory of Israel. Then if there's no one to save us, we'll give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. So historical background I found in one of the commentaries will give us a little more of an idea of this Nahash fellow and how he was oppressing the Israelites in the northeast of Israel's territory. He had already been afflicting the two tribes, Reuben and Gad, that lived on the other side of the Jordan. He would capture their soldiers. He would gouge out their right eyes to ensure that they wouldn't be able to fight in battle again. And some of those troops uh, from those two tribes had fled to Jabesh Gilead. So Nahash moved in to threaten the whole city and to take most of Israel's territory in the area. Verse 5, now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, what is wrong with the people that they're weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah, 30,000. So Saul comes in from a day's work of farming, and he hears a lot of crying. (laughs) When he hears the story, the spirit rushes upon him again. So like I said, spirit's operating a little bit differently. So we see this second rush implying that the spirit didn't stay on him. This time... The spirit sticks around for a longer period of time. We'll see that in coming weeks. He cuts up oxen into pieces and sends them to every tribe in Israel, threatening that whoever doesn't come out with him and Samuel, their oxen are going to get the same treatment. Sounds a little extreme. (laughs) But so let me unpack some of the history from the book of Judges involving all of these same major players to shed some more light on their current situation and what the Israelites would have recalled at this time time. Saul's hometown where the messengers come is Gibeah of the tribe of Benjamin. This is the place where in Judges 19, a Levi and his concubines stay for the night. Some worthless fellows in that story of the tribe of Benjamin come to the home where they're staying and long story short, abuse the woman so badly that she dies right outside the door the next morning. The Levite man sees she's deceased cuts her up into 12 pieces and sends the pieces to every tribe. That's not a piece of mail the Israelites are expecting, and they are grieved. They all come out to hear the story at Mizpah. The Levite explains what happened, and the rest of the tribes go out as one man to bring judgment against the worthless fellows in Benjamin. The men of Benjamin cover for the worthless fellows, which leads to a civil war between Benjamin and the rest of Israel, where Benjamin is eventually defeated. When the rest of Israel was at Mizpah before the battle began, they'd made an oath to not give their daughters in marriage to the Benjamites because of their atrocity. So the rest of Israel at this point starts to feel bad for Benjamin not being able to continue on because they nearly killed everyone, all excluding 600 men who ran away. 
So they start looking around to see where they're going to find wives for these 600 men so that this tribe doesn't die out. And they realize the men of Jabesh-Gilead didn't come to help fight the battle. So they send their best group of men to kill everyone there, excluding the virgins in Jabesh-Gilead, and force those women to marry the remaining Benjamites. So back to 1 Samuel 11. The people of Israel receiving cut-up oxen like this would have remembered this story. Jabesh-Gilead, the place who didn't send their people to bring justice to Benjamin with the rest of Israel, now needs help. And who and where do they have to send messengers to? The new king that is a Benjamite in Gibeah, the tribe that was nearly wiped out completely by the rest of Israel for their atrocity in refusing justice. The very place where one of the darkest scenes in Israel's history occurs, their deliverance is now sought. From a human perspective, we can see because of the history around the place, the rest of Israel would wonder if Jabesh Gilead's even worth saving. So Saul threatens them otherwise. And the dread of the Lord fell upon them, and 330,000 men come out as one man. Verse 9. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we'll give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day, Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Saul sends those messengers back, telling them salvation's coming, and it was. Saul leads in his first battle against the Ammonites and wins. Verse 12. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring them in, that we may put them to death. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Worthless fellows must just be hard to forget across the board because as soon as Saul has his first success, some of the people want Samuel to take revenge on the ones who didn't fall in love with Saul on the spot back in chapter 10. After all, the worthless fellows asked how this man was going to save them, and he has by the Spirit of God. Saul stops their deaths by pointing to the great salvation God has shown Israel and Samuel has everyone meet at Gilgal to renew the kingdom. And that location is repeated many times in just a couple of verses. And it's because Gilgal was a special place in Israel's history. This is where God had cut off the waters to the Jordan River for Joshua and the people to enter into the promised land. It was the town where 12 memorial stones were placed in the river. And so we see or we saw Saul's confirmation day, if you will, in chapter 10. And here we basically see what amounts to his coronation day. Everyone rejoices at Gilgal again. They've officially, they officially have the king they demanded. And this section ends with Samuel stepping aside from being Israel's main leader and handing off the reins to the new king. Let's read chapter 12. 
Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice and all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I've walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am, testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I'll restore it to you. They said, You've not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord has witnessed against you and his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. Samuel begins this address by having the Israelites recall his own ministry. He contrasts his ministry to that of what he's warned them the king will do. He asks them if he's taken anything from them or oppressed them in any way, to which they respond, he hasn't. And then he begins to recount Israel's past to them. It's another call at another time for Israel to remember whose they are. Verse 6, and Samuel said to the people, the Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord. And the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God. And he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We've sinned because we've forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of your enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbabel and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hands of your enemies on every side. And you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. Samuel reminds them of the Lord's faithfulness to them, hearkening back to the Exodus when the Israelites called out to God in Egypt, but they forgot. He then shows them God allowed their enemies to come up against them because of their idolatry, just as they were warned in the covenant curses in Deuteronomy 28. They cried out, and God delivered them by raising up judges, but they forgot. They're approached by another enemy and demand a human king when God was their king. Verse 13, and now behold the king you have chosen for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, And if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. They've chosen to have a king, and the Lord has given them what they asked. And Samuel sets up more if-then statements, covenant-type language. If they and their king obey God, all will be well. But if not, the hand of God will go against them. Verse 16, now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. 
Is it not wheat harvest today? I'll call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. Hang on. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die, for he has added, we have added to, to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. Samuel calls down a thun- thunder and rainstorm during a time in the middle of the dry season, so they will see and understand the wickedness and evil of their request. The people are terrified of God and Samuel, and they beg Samuel to intercede for them. And this is reminiscent of when the covenant was given at Mount Sinai. The people see the Lord's thundering, and they're afraid, asking Moses to speak to the Lord for them so they won't have to. But it should also make us think of God's thundering against the Philistines from last week, his enemies. Here, in choosing a king like all the nations instead of God, Israel has chosen to be God's enemy. And he thunders against them. And where I would expect this scene to close, we instead get a beautiful picture of a good leader and a greater God. Verse 20. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I'll instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Samuel doesn't tell them what they've done wrong is okay. He reminds them this choice to ask for a king like all the nations is evil. But he promises to continue praying for them and giving them guidance in the ways of the Lord. He calls them to faithfulness to the Lord alone. He warns them wicked ways will lead to them being swept away and implores them to not turn to things that will not deliver or satisfy them. He desires them to fear God who doesn't give up on them because of who he is, because he's graciously chosen them. And Samuel tells them to spend their days serving God and considering what great things he's done on their behalf, even under a human king. The continued idolatry of turning from God to empty things that wouldn't deliver Israel was shown again by their asking for a king like all the nations. God gives them what they've demanded, choosing the man for himself. Samuel anoints Saul as Israel's first king, instituting the monarch as the Lord's anointed. The people do not look at the character of Saul, but they look on Saul's exterior, and they shout long, live the king. He proves to be a decent pick, uniting Israel around groups of their own people with an ugly history and defeating a common enemy, the Ammonites. 
Samuel warns the king isn't going to fix Israel's hearts. They still must obey the commands of their true king, for he alone will satisfy them. His ways are better than their ways, and his call to being holy, to being set apart, to being different is for their good. No, we don't live in a context with a monarchy. We're very familiar with kings and kingdoms. We're all tempted to demand and justify the need of another king, whether that is the king of comfort, of control, of contentment, or just the king of self. We'll disregard all the warnings and all the warning signs because we think we know best that our will proves better than God's. So this week I'd like to close with some questions to ponder on. Who is the king that your life shows that you ask for? Do you ask for the king that keeps you fitting in instead of sticking out? Or the king who calls you to holiness, to being different? Do you ask for the king you know is limited, but that you can see? Or the king who is unlimited, yet unseen? Do you ask for the king that by earthly physical standards is able to go out and fight your battles? Or the king that was despised and rejected by men but has all authority? Do you ask for the king that bows to your will or the king whose will you wholeheartedly seek above your own? The first options are what Samuel warned the Israelites are empty and don't deliver. They will take and take and take. You will become bound to another yoke of slavery. But the second option leads to the king that fully satisfies, that gives the freedom and joy we seek and never wavers in faithfulness to his people. So may our lives show that the king we ask for is the Messiah, the anointed one, to whom we pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Long live the king. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these chapters. Even though it feels like going back and forth between how, like, how are we supposed to feel, we end on this note of asking for another king beside you is wicked. But yet we've also seen that you have promised that you promised the Israelites at this point and you, you have shown us that this kingdom, this king that they asked for, you used for good. You used to point us to the king that we need the king that we might not ask for, but that once we realize provides us with satisfaction, provides us with joy, provides us with freedom, provides us with hope in this world, that we might ask for him. Lord, and I pray that that is what these chapters lead us to do in our daily lives, that we would ask for the king, your king, your son, Christ. His name I pray, amen.